I come to you for I know you satisfy I am weary but I know your love does not run dry and so I wait for you oh, I wait I'm falling on my knees, offering all of me. Jesus, you're all this heart is living for. Broken, I run to you for your arms are open wide I am weary but I know your touch restores my life and so I wait for you so I wait for you I'm falling on my knees, offering all of me. Jesus, you're all this heart is living for. I'm
Church, we have a strong hope in these times, these crazy, difficult times. We have an author of salvation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am. Father, you are all that you say that you are, and we worship you. Receive our praise this morning. Oh, Lord.
Father, you are the hope of the nations, our glorious Savior. Father, help us be lights in this world. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this moment that you've given to us, this time to gather together as your church, both certainly here in person and online. We are your church. Jesus, you are our Savior, and we love you. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Good morning. My name is Ben, and this is my God at Work story. My wife, Caitlin, and I have been attending Redemption since 2014. We both grew up in London in wonderful Christian homes. We have four beautiful girls, ages two, four, seven, and nine. I work as a chiropractor. My wife is currently a stay-at-home mom uh, teaching our girls. I was blessed to have grown up in a strong, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring home. I always knew God to be truth with a good understanding of the gospel, and grew up with a desire to know Christ and serve him. I've been a believer as long as I can remember. I was baptized as a preteen. Um, while growing up, I was homeschooled for a couple of years and attended a Christian homeschool co-op where my wife tells me we apparently met. She was right because I'm sitting right beside her in the front row. <laughs> I was unaware of this, but she was right. Um, so we met again, or met depending on who you ask, later in high school through mutual friends, and we've been together since. We got married in 2009. I'm thankful to say I gave my life to Christ as a child. As a teenager, I lived for God and wanted my life to be defined by Christ. For a couple years in high school, however, I allowed my desire for approval from others and fitting in with my peers to take first place in my life rather than God. I never walked away from God, but complacency and a lukewarm Christianity was creeping in. I'm thankful that God stirred in me a passion for him. And after first year of university, I ended up taking a year off of undergrad and went to do an internship at a church in Colorado and did some overseas work in a program called 24-7 Leadership Academy. I returned home to London to complete my undergrad and in 2009 got married to Caitlin. Throughout my schooling in London and then in Toronto for chiropractic school, I continued to grow in my faith. I was very involved with church, as well as at Western uh, with Campus for Christ, and then in Toronto, I was blessed to lead the Christian club at my school. When I graduated, we returned to London in 2014, and I've been practicing as a chiropractor since. At this point, we knew we wanted to carefully and prayerfully select a permanent home for church to put down our roots for ourselves and our girls. We already had a great number of friendships at Redemption, um, 
Caitlin grew up attending Redemption back when it was originally called Southwest Community Church. I actually remember going to some church services and youth group meetings nearly 20 years ago. I remember tobogganing down Joe and Beth's stairs. They're on stage right now, actually. (laughs) I remember meeting in Steve and Jody's uh, home in their apartment with just a couple of us. With a history of many great relationships in Christ-centered, Bible-based teaching, as well as the community of believers and friends who are committed to discipleship and growing in relationship with the Lord, at this church, it made it very easy for us to select Redemption as our church home. Caitlin and I dove in. We've been involved with small group, growing kids God's way course, serving in kids ministry. I also serve with the music team. Uh, I love serving God through music. I can't remember a time that I wasn't playing drums in church. When we first started serving at Redemption, I served on the setup team rather than on the drums, which was a big change for me. It was about six months before I served on the music team, which felt like a long time, but it was great. It was an opportunity to be able to serve in other ways and worship without drumsticks in my hands. It's been a joy to be able to play drums at Redemption, and I wasn't sad to see the early morning setups and teardowns come to an end once we moved into our building rather than renting at Banting. I'd been part of churches in rented spaces my entire adult life, up until then, so I was able to commiserate with the music team and the tech teams on the setup and teardown. I was also able to share in their joy when we got this church building when God provided. More recently, I served as elder intern last year and was greatly blessed by my time doing that, getting to know our elders, the behind the scenes of what they do. Four months after my internship ended this past September, the elders formally asked me to enter the consideration process to become a full-time elder just this past January. To be honest, until I was approached about doing the internship in summer of 2019, I didn't fully understand the weight or blessing of what being an elder means. I learned how 1 Timothy 3 talks about the noble task of eldering, the high standard of expectation for this position. Titus 1 also speaks about an elder being above reproach, hospitable, disciplined, and one that holds firmly to the word of God, among other attributes. Looking at that list, it's easy to see God describes a standard of expectation that without the Holy Spirit is unattainable. I become acutely aware of how relying on Christ and humbling oneself to the work of the Holy Spirit is essential for the Christian leader, keeping in mind that in the flesh, we all fall way short. As I discussed in a short article I wrote about my elder internship in April of 2020 on the church blog, It has been a joy getting to know the men who have faithfully led our church for many years and put in many hours behind the scenes in prayer, contemplation, discussion. Before my elder internship, I really didn't know any of the elders beyond acquaintance. I didn't know any of them personally. But in the past year and a half, it has been an absolute joy to get to know these men and grow in relationship with them. Being influenced by them has encouraged me to step up my prayer life, my devotional time, and my desire and pursuit of God. These men make decisions in humble submission to the Holy Spirit and one another. There is no power struggle. There's no arguing. There's no pushing of personal agendas. It is truly incredible. I've been humbled to be asked to join them as elder this year. Another piece of my life that's been growing recently a lot is as a husband and father through family worship, which I talked about in church a couple weeks ago, and interestingly, Scott touched on last week for uh, during his God at Work story as well. Previous to a few months ago, I would pray with my girls during bedtime routine and read the Bible with them most nights, but formalizing family worship into the culture of our home has made a huge difference. Read, 
pray, sing catechism. This has rapidly grown my family's knowledge and understanding of who God is. It's just a joy to see my girls flourish in this department and steward the gift of parenting them in this way. Looking back, the Lord has so clearly been at work in my life and the life of my family. The Lord continues to grow my desire for a deeper understanding of who he is, and I'm growing in relationship with him through studying the word and doing life in fellowship and community with the believers here at Redemption. Our six and a half years here has been a wonderful catalyst for my growth spiritually, and we are thankful for the leadership at Redemption and love being part of this body of Christ. I'm excited for the next chapter of involvement at Redemption as an elder and serving God and his church in this way. Thanks for listening to my story. Thank you, Ben. Let's continue to pray for him and pray for all all of our elders as they lead us. Let's stand together as we continue to worship. the cross put the enemy to shame and now my song echoes through an empty grave because the cross put the enemy to shame now my song echoes through an empty grave because 
praying Psalm 117 together. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. We praise you, Lord. This is your word, and we love it. It is true. Your promises never fail us. Great is your faithfulness to us, Lord. And it's your name we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Church, may be seated. Well, good morning, Redemption Bible Chapel. It is good to be here. It is good to see bodies, people. I don't know how else to say this. It is brutal preaching to an empty room. You, I, I know it's brutal watching at home, but it is brutal preaching to an empty room. So I am so thankful we're here and so thankful for you and so thankful for Redemption Bible Chapel and the light that it is, uh, not just here in London, but coast to coast to coast. Um, the internet and videos and everything else, it does get the message out there, and we should be encouraged by that, and uh, encouraged and comforted by this great reality that uh, Christ is building His kingdom one way or the other, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in chapter 5, verse 1. And it goes all the way to the end of chapter 7. And you and I, we have some unfinished business in chapter 6. So I invite you to turn there with me and follow along as I read from verse 25 through to verse 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Back to verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Down to verse 27, and which of you by being anxious 
into verse 28. And why are you anxious? Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious. Middle of the verse, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. I think we can say with some authority exactly what the theme of the Lord Jesus is in the verses before us. Anxious, being anxious, anxiety. Mary, no one associated with Redemption Bible Chapel. Mary was growing increasingly anxious and beginning to experience panic attacks. And these went on for some weeks. She finally confided in a friend who put her in contact with a Christian counselor at the first session. Mary divulged, she shared that she was worried sick about her husband's risky financial investments, which jeopardized much of their retirement savings. The Christian counselor offered comfort from Scripture, assuring Mary that God knew what was happening. He arranged for Mary and her husband to attend a financial planning class at their church, and he provided guidance as to how Mary and her husband could communicate better when making big decisions. So according to this Christian counselor, what was Mary's problem? Her husband's risky financial investment. According to this Christian counselor, what was the solution, the remedy for Mary's anxiety? Threefold. Number one, understanding that God cares. Number two, acquiring better financial management skills. And number three, cultivating better communication between husband and wife. The counselor sought to modify Mary's behavior and circumstances, but the reality is this. That Christian counselor never got anywhere near Mary's real problem. Didn't even begin to address the real issue. What was the real issue? Mary has a worship problem. Hear this, friends. Hear this, please. And we need to get this, and we need to get it good. Circumstances are not the cause of anxiety but the occasion of anxiety. We can change the circumstances. We can seek to alleviate anxiety by addressing the circumstances. It is but placing a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. Mary's issue is not circumstantial. Mary's issue is relational. Mary is struggling with a worship problem whereby she has exalted her financial security above God himself. And the moment it is touched, the moment it is threatened, she disintegrates into an anxious mess, unable to cope with life. We need to be careful. If you tuned in last Sunday morning and you heard me preach on verses 25 through 30, you will recall that at the outset, I very carefully laid out for us so that there is no misunderstanding that there are four different kinds of anxiety. 
I almost asked, like showing, asking for a show of hands, how many heard that, got that, and understood that, but I won't bother. Let me repeat it. There are four different kinds of anxiety. Number one, there is an anxiety, anxiety, that is a natural response due to an imminent threat. And so it's one o'clock in the morning, something goes crash, something goes bang in your basement. Someone's down there. All is not well. You should feel a little anxious. That is not what the Lord Jesus is talking about in these verses. The Lord Jesus is not talking of this anxiety, which is a natural response due to an imminent threat. There's a second kind of anxiety. Here it is. It is a behavioral response due to a physiological ailment. So this is entirely possible for I know. There could be some young woman present right now, or perhaps she is home watching. She's just given birth to a baby, and she has undergone some significant changes, bodily turmoil, right? And so physically, hormonally, perhaps a little bit whatever as a result of giving birth, and this has led to depression, high levels of anxiety. Sister, do not beat yourself up. This text is not about that. The Lord Jesus is not talking about that kind of anxiety. He is not addressing this kind of behavioral response, which is directly due to a physiological ailment. Thirdly, third kind of anxiety. A spiritual response due to conviction for sin. And so God forbid, but someone sitting here, sitting at home, 12 o'clock last night, there you were on your phone looking at pornography. And now there you sit, a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're a bit of an anxious mess. So you should be. That's called conviction for sin. That's called the conscience, the alarm bells going off. All is not well. That is your conscience comparing what you know to be true according to God's word, comparing that with your conduct, indicating to you you've fallen short, and you now feel the anxiety. That is not, that's another sermon, folks. That is not what the Lord Jesus is speaking to here. There is a fourth kind of anxiety. And here we go. We're getting closer to Mary's problem. And we're getting much closer to what the Lord Jesus is addressing in our text. It is this. Anxiety is a sinful response due to idolatry. Mary is struggling with idolatry. Mary has a worship issue. Should she be concerned about her husband's risky financial investment? She most certainly should. Should they be talking about this? Definitely. Should they be getting help? Certainly. Should they be attending some sort of financial planning, whatever, counseling session? That's fine. But understand, Mary's crossed the line. There is something else going on here. The fact that she is now in the clutches, the grasp, the grip of anxiety. The fact that she's now struggling with panic attacks. The fact that she is becoming decreasingly functional because she is so absorbed with what she perceives to be this threat to her financial security indicates to us that yes, while we might need to speak to the circumstances... Mary's problem is far deeper. She's actually got a relational issue. She actually has a God issue. She actually is struggling with a worship 
problem. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, how dare you pick on Mary like that? Well, I'm not really picking on Mary. I'm simply communicating what the Lord Jesus tells us in the text. The very fact that the Lord Jesus says three times, do not be anxious, tells you what? We cannot blame the circumstantial, nor can we blame the psychological. This is something within our control. This is something we choose to do. And this is something we can choose not to do. Do not be anxious. And in these verses, the Lord Jesus basically has two main points. And, and, and he articulates these in two major sections. And it's easy to pinpoint these sections because each begins with precisely the same commandment. And so he gives the commandment for the first time in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And then he gives a threefold description, what you will eat what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And so those three, that's not an exhaustive list. They're intended to represent the whole, all of life, the material. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And then in this first section, the Lord Jesus pinpoints the precise cause of anxiety, and it is this, ascribing ultimate power to something other than God. And he prescribes a very pointed remedy, and it is what? A sight of God's incomparable power, his providential care over the entire cosmos, including something as trivial and insignificant as the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And the question the Lord Jesus forces us to reckon with in this first section is simply this. Brother, sister, where is your faith? That's the first section. The second section, he begins with exactly the same commandment, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying. And he follows it with the same threefold description. What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And in this section, he pinpoints another cause of anxiety. And it is this. It is ascribing ultimate worth, ultimate value to something other than God. And his remedy, obviously, is what? It is appreciating God's inestimable worth. And the question we must ask and we must answer, however painful it might be, is simply this. Where is your treasure? You see, anxiety. Anxiety, the kind of anxiety we are speaking of. It is a relational problem. It is an idolatry issue whereby, again, we have ascribed either ultimate power or ultimate worth to something other than God. And so let's go back to Mary. And let's suppose Mary had come to see me and had divulged what was going on. Yes, I would have communicated God cares. That's wonderful. That's an extremely important truth. And as a matter of fact, we're going to get that in a few moments. Yes, I have no problem recommending some sort of seminar or session on financial and investment and wise money management, whatever. And some pointers on how to communicate better between husband and wife, 
especially when it comes to making decisions which are so impactful and so significant. I'm all for that. But I would have been very clear to communicate to Mary, Mary, there's a lot more going on here. And I would take Mary to the text before us, Matthew 6, verses 31 through 40, 34. And I would suggest to Mary, if she would listen and put up with it, I would suggest to Mary, look, the Lord Jesus is saying four things to you. All right, here we go. There's your outline for today's sermon. The Lord Jesus is saying four things to us. The first is this, confess. Mary, you need to confess. Confess what? Look at the opening statement in verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after these things. The Gentiles, it is code for those who do not know God. It's code for those who have no relationship with God, those who have no knowledge of God, no knowledge of His incomparable power, no awareness of His incomparable wisdom, his goodness, his absolute sovereignty. The Gentiles, those who don't know God, they know nothing about God. Mary, that's how they live. They seek after these things. Seek, it actually signifies to pursue with all their might. Mary, that's how they live. They don't have a God-centered view of the universe. They don't have a God-focused view of life. They don't know the Lord Jesus. They don't know the God whom you know. That, therefore, is how they live. They live a very self-focused life. They live a life which is focused on the material, the here and the now. Well, Mary, Christian, that's not you. That's not me. We do know God. And therefore, when it comes to our approach to the circumstances of life, however unpleasant, we interpret and understand those circumstances through the lens of the God whom we know. Paul articulates this so well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he declares, verse 15, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. How do unbelievers live? They live for themselves. Everything in this life is seen through the lens of self, self-focus, their dreams, their values, their aspirations, their perception of their needs. It is all seen, all viewed, all understood, all interpreted through this lens of self, self-love. Christian, that's not you. Sticking with Mary. Mary, that's not you. We've been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been ransomed, redeemed by his precious blood, thereby made members of the family of God. The Gentiles pursue headlong after those things. That's not how we approach life. That's not how we see life. That's not why we are here. That's not our purpose. That's not our calling. We've died to self. We no longer live for self. It's no longer about my self-assessment or how I, what I think I need, or my ambitions, or my longings, or what I'm driven to attain. No, I no longer live for myself. I now live for Christ. And Mary, you need to confess. You need to confess that's not what you've been doing. 
And you need to confess that's why you're an anxious mess. It's because you're living just like a Gentile. Dare I say it? The God you say you believe in is not the God of your reality. And this is the takeaway that I would offer to Mary in the words of David Powelson. If what you want, if what you most value can be taken away or destroyed, then you set yourself up for anxiety. This is powerfully illustrated in The Hobbit. Do you remember? Not the movies. They were a bit long, weren't they? Three. They didn't really need three movies to portray that book. The Hobbit. And Tolkien, oh, he portrays this in, in magnificent fashion because the entire premise of The Hobbit is what? We are driven in our pursuit of treasure. And smog, the dragon, has accumulated that treasure, right, in the lonely mountain. And Thorin, king of the dwarfs, he is driven to access, to gain, to get a hold of that treasure. As a matter of fact, it draws dwarfs and men and elves and orcs and everything else to this great battle at the foot of Lonely Mountain. And what drives it all is what? The pursuit of treasure. And Thorin, he goes mad, doesn't he? In his pursuit of that treasure. It grips him. It controls him. It holds him. It affects his relationship with everybody else. It affects his outlook, his perspective, his dreams, his ambitions. His treasure drives him. Well, the reality is this, friend. We're driven. Just, we just need to admit it, confess it. We are driven in life. You have a treasure. Maybe multiple treasures. I have a treasure. There is something right now, you sitting there, me standing here, there is something right now we could put in the blank. I want. What is it? I want. This is what I think about when I'm driving along the 401 and nothing else to think about. This is what I wake up thinking about at 2 o'clock in the morning. In my downtime, turn off your mind time, this is what suddenly enters in uninvited and captures my thoughts. This is what leads to anxiety. If ever I perceived it's threatened or I might not get what it is I want. And you know, for many of us, it is, it, it's not necessarily a material thing. It's not necessarily something tangible in this life. It could be something as simple as wanting to be happy. I want to feel happy. I want to feel secure. I want to get the vaccine as soon as possible. Did it, was that below the belt? <laughs> Maybe. I gotta get that vaccine and then all will be well. I won't be the anxious mess anymore. Yeah, you will. Just be something else, my friend. Because circumstances are not the cause of anxiety, they are simply what? the opportunity to express anxiety. Oh, I want to be appreciated by others. I want to be free of hassles, just a hassle-free life. I want to be free of the coronavirus restrictions. I want to get that job, get that home, get that family. Ooh, I want to put that person in his place. I want to resolve or control that situation. I want to have the perfect body. I want to just get out of here. Well, these desires create anxiety. Why? Because we have ascribed to them ultimate worth. 
they become things which are greater in value than God. How dare I say that? I know it's true because they turn us into an anxious mess. And it is our anxiety which is a symptom. Our, a symptom of a heart problem. A symptom of a worship problem. A symptom of an idolatry problem. That is what I'd say to Mary. If she's still sitting with me as we talk, I would press on. And I would say, Mary, here's the second thing the Lord Jesus wants you to hear. It's simply this. Believe. It's the second thing he's saying to you. The first was confess. Here's the second. Believe. Believe what? Return with me to verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after these things, all these things, and your heavenly Father. We've heard that phrase before. It was in last week's sermon, last week's text, back to verse 26, right in the middle. Yet your heavenly Father. It just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It's beautiful. Your heavenly Father, back to verse 32, knows that you need them all. This is what you need to believe, Mary. This is what you need to believe, Christian. We need to believe in our heavenly Father and believe in who he is. This God who possesses, yes, incomparable power and wisdom and goodness and strength and sovereignty. And we need to understand that this, this great God, this King of kings and this Lord of lords, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the one who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, this God has set his love upon his people before the foundation of the world. And in time, this God, this Father, has sent forth His Son as the revelation of that love. Because Paul tells us in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. It's the revealing of His love. And that Son is born of woman. That's the incarnation. Born under the law, meaning He became a curse for us. He took that penalty which was due to us for our sin. He took it upon Himself, upon Calvary's cross. And in so doing, He rescues us. He redeems us from the curse, from death, from hell. And it gets even better that having come and having rescued us in the Son, we now become what? The sons of God adopted into the family of God. There is the declaration of the Father's love for us. And Paul doesn't stop there. The Father then sends forth the Spirit. And the Spirit does what? He enters into our hearts. And having entered into our hearts, what do we cry? Abba, Father. The triune God is a self-giving God. The Father gives the Son in time. It's the incarnation. He purchases and secures our salvation and our adoption as sons. The Father gives the Spirit in time. And the we are baptized by Christ with the Spirit into the body of Christ. And we enter into the family of God. And that Spirit now dwells in us by whom we cry. We've come to life. And we cry, Abba, Father. He is our heavenly Father. And He knows you need all these things. The psalmist tells us, Psalm 125, verse 1 or verse 2, that the Lord is the shade on your right hand. It's actually shadow. The Lord is the shadow on your right hand. It was bright on the drive over here. I assume it's still a bright, sunny day out there. If we were to head out into the parking lot, the sun is overhead. What would we see there on the parking lot? Our shadow. 
Run as fast as you want. You can't get away from your shadow. It's with you. That's the psalmist's point. The Lord is the shade, your shade on your right hand. He is with you, always with you, knows you fully and perfectly. You remember Hagar, Genesis 16, and that completely deplorable situation involving Abraham and Sarah. And and, and Hagar, she conceives by Abraham. Sarah, fit of rage, fit of jealousy. You can imagine what a mess. And she begins to mistreat Hagar. And, And Hagar flees from Abraham and Sarah's home. And there she is in the wilderness, nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, no hope before her. And the Lord comes to her and appears to her and speaks to her. And the Lord assures her that he's watching over her. The Lord assures her that she will have a son who will become the head of a nation. And the Lord encourages her to return to the home of Abraham and Sarah. And Hagar, after that encounter with the Almighty, declares what? You are the God, Elroy. You are the God who sees. He sees, what is Hagar, folks? Completely insignificant. Where is Hagar in the wilderness? Who sees her, knows her, all about her? The God who sees the shade on our right hand, our heavenly Father. And if I were talking to Mary, oh, I would be encouraging Mary. Mary, you need to believe this God is the object of your faith. And Mary, this is, the, this is the takeaway. This is what you need to take to heart. Yes, God is out of our sight. He isn't tangible. We can't see him. God is out of our sight. But we are never, ever out of his sight. Job, on his darkest day, in his darkest moment, was never out of God's sight. God was the shadow on his right hand. Naomi standing beside those graves, her husband and two sons. Can you imagine? The Lord was with her. The Lord saw her. He was the shadow on her right hand. You think of Joseph languishing in jail. Oh, you think of David hiding like a dog, like a wild animal from Saul, a lunatic king. You think of Paul languishing in the prison cell. Just read the Bible from cover to cover. Suffering saint after suffering saint. And yet this absolute assurance that God knows his people fully. He knows them perfectly. Yes, he is out of our sight. But we are never out of his sight. And we must believe that our heavenly fathers knows that we need them all. The third thing I would say to Mary is this. Seek. It's Christ's own words, Christ's own language as we move into the 33rd verse. It's a command. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What is the kingdom of God? Paul gives us a very detailed, precise, concise definition In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, he tells us that the kingdom of God, notice threefold description, it is righteousness, it is peace, and it is joy in the Holy Spirit. To possess the kingdom of God, to be a member in the kingdom of God, is to know God. 
It is to attain to that righteousness which he requires and that righteousness which is only found in his son Jesus Christ. It is, come, it is to come to God through Christ in faith whereby God reckons the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. And having reckoned that righteousness to us, we now declare there is therefore now no condemnation. It's peace. There is no condemnation, no curse for those who are in Christ Jesus. And realizing this and taking it to heart, the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we now know a joy that cannot be touched by the circumstances of life because it is a joy rooted, fixed in an unchanging relationship with our Heavenly Father in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's all wonderfully put on display for us in the Beatitudes. As you study the Sermon on the Mount, interpret the sermon by the sermon. It interprets itself. And so here we're, we're told to seek after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. A little light bulb should go off and we should all of a sudden hearken back to the beginning of this sermon. It's called the rule of first mention. And you go all the way back to Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. How does the Lord Jesus commence this sermon? Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? They're, they are those who know they're sinners. They are no, they're those who know they're riddled with self-love. They, they, they're those who know they're alienated from God and, and disobedient. And, and this creates humility. It creates poverty of spirit. Well, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who are those who mourn? Well, there are those who are poor in spirit. Because as we recognize our sin and we come face to face with our sinfulness before a holy God, what's the result? We mourn, we grieve, we repent of it. And blessed are who's next? The meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? Well, there are those who mourn. Who are those who mourn? They are the poor in spirit. Because as we see ourselves as we are, really are before a holy God and we grieve and sorrow on account of our sin, this instills and cultivates meekness in us whereby we realize in this life anything short of eternal damnation is mercy. Do you believe that? I can say it. I'm not sure I always believe it or live it to my shame. Anything short of eternal damnation in this life is a mercy. Oh, that's meekness, which flows from mourning, which flows from poverty of spirit. And then what does the Lord Jesus go on and say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Where does this hungering and thirsting come from? It comes from meekness. Where did meekness come from? It comes from the mourning. Where does the mourning come from? It comes from poverty of spirit. And what does the Lord Jesus say to those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, a righteousness that is only found in Jesus Christ? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven. And a day is coming, yes, those of you who mourn, when you will be comforted. Yes, a day is coming, those who are meek, when you will inherit the earth. And a day is coming, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, when that hungering and thirsting will be fully satisfied in glory. And blessed are the merciful. Why? For you shall receive mercy on that judgment day. And blessed are the pure in heart. Why? The beatific vision. 
you shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because Christ will own you on that day and you will de be declared to be the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? For yours is. Back to the stative verb. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's an inclusion. It's a literary device. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We possess it now, the kingdom of grace. Yes, it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And all of those promises between the first and the eighth beatitude are in the future of assurance, the kingdom of glory. This is what is held out to us as believers. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And you enjoy a foretaste of it now. But it is but a foretaste. The fullness is coming, the kingdom of glory. And now the Lord Jesus adds this word in chapter 6, verse 33. Seek it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Make this your chief priority. Make this your chief goal in life. We no longer live for self we now live for Christ. Everything is to be understood. Everything is to be interpreted. Everything is to be valued through the lens of the kingdom of God. And all of our dreams, all of our desires, all of our goals, all of our aspirations, and even including our perception of our own needs, must be interpreted through this lens, the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus is simply saying this, Mary, there's your treasure, the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is open to us by means of the king himself, Jesus Christ. Hear these words, please. Our primary goal in life isn't to get rid of anxiety. It is to love the Lord Jesus above all else. Why? John tells us, 1 John 4, isn't it verse 18, somewhere around there? Perfect love casts out fear. Anxiety, perfect love. If we run around trying to get rid of our anxiety, if we run around trying to deal with this anxious mess that we find ourselves in sometimes, it might very well be to no avail. Because in actual fact, the remedy is what? It is a greater love for the Lord Jesus. And as we love the Lord Jesus as we ought, and as we take the Lord Jesus as our treasure, and as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that leaves no room for anxiety. Here's the takeaway that I would leave with Mary. It is simply this. When our greatest treasure is secure... We are at peace. What's the issue? What is your treasure? When our greatest treasure is secure, we are at peace. God offers you the precious blood of His Son, the abiding presence of His Spirit, forgiveness of sin, peace of conscience, eternal hope, abundant joy, complete satisfaction, and the enjoyment of Him for all eternity. 
That is the third thing the Lord Jesus is telling us. Seek. And here's the fourth. Mary, we've made it through one, two, and three. Yes, confess. Confess, yes, believe. Yes, seek. And here's number four. Obey. Just obey. Obey what? What's the command? And now the Lord Jesus repeats it for a third time. Verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Work backwards. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We do have trouble. We do face extremely difficult situations. Circumstances are overwhelming at times. You crawled out of bed this morning, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. First thing on your mind is the trouble you're facing today. We're not denying that. We're not going to live in denial here, nor are we stoic, simply saying, stiff upper lip, old man. That's not what we're offering here. We recognize there is trouble, and life is difficult, and there are valleys we walk through, and sufficient for the day is its own trouble, but work backwards. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. You don't control tomorrow, friend. Matter of fact, you don't control what happens in the next 30 seconds. Neither do I. It is time and energy misspent. When we look ahead, when we look to tomorrow, we are entering into the realm of God's decrees, the mystery of God's decrees. We are entering into the realm of the one who is without beginning, who is without end, and who is above all succession of time. Work backwards, right at the start of verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow is in God's hands, friend. The Lord Jesus isn't saying don't make wise decisions. He's not saying don't make plans, don't make investments. Let's not abuse or misuse what the Lord Jesus is saying here. Keep it perfectly in context. Stay with his thought flow. That's not the road he's going down. He's still dealing with this issue of idolatry, whereby we ascribe ultimate power to something other than God, or we ascribe ultimate value to something other than God, and that now has our minds transfixed on what's coming down the highway. And this all-consuming desire then to control, oh, to want to control, and to determine what's going to happen tomorrow. Oh, my friend, that is in God's hands. You get up in the morning. Here we are, February 21st. Today is today. Live the day as a unit. Face what God has put on your plate today. Face what God has brought your way today. Face what God is leading you by the hand into today. And to determine simply this, that in the midst of whatever today brings, I am going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I am going to evaluate everything through this lens that my greatest treasure is Jesus Christ and he and he alone is of inestimable worth. The psalmist states it so eloquently. We know this one, Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, each and every day. God's two sheepdogs, goodness and mercy, nipping at our heels each and every day, keeping us on track. And the psalmist goes on to celebrate 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's all we need to know about tomorrow. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here's the takeaway from Mary. What we believe concerning the future determines how we live at present. What we believe concerning the future determines how we live at present. This is the last time I flew to Calgary. I guess it was oh, last year, early last year. Uh, one of the runways, north, south, we landed going to the south. I was sitting on the right-hand side of the plane, window seat, clear, beautiful, blue sky, beautiful day. There off in the distance, what? The Rockies in all their splendor and majesty. I rented the car, and I drove up into the Rockies. It makes you feel so small, doesn't it? It makes you feel so insignificant. Those mountains towering all around you. Here's a question. What do they look like from the moon? You can't even discern them from that perspective. Friends, where am I going with this? What we believe concerning the future determines, dictates how we live at present. We must cultivate an eternal perspective and recognize that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and celebrate that goodness and mercy follow us each and every day of our lives. And God's goodness and mercy is sufficient to aid us and help us to glorify Him in whatever trouble today brings as we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. I'm finished with Mary. That was our counseling session. And Mary, yes, God cares for you. Mary, yes, go take that financial planning seminar. That's fine. Yes, Read that book on how to communicate better with your husband. But Mary, don't be fooled. Your problem isn't circumstantial. It's relational. It's an idolatry issue. And you need to listen to the Lord Jesus. Confess, believe, seek, and obey. And my closing prayer with Mary would be simply this. Had I 10,000 tongues, not one should silent be. Had I 10,000 hearts, Lord, I'd give them all to thee. He is of inestimable worth, the greatest treasure. Our Heavenly Father, may that be so with us today. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. You would enlighten us that we might know the hope to which you have called us. The riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power toward those who believe. May these be real to us. May we take them to heart. And we pray that this again might be for our good, your glory, and in the precious name of the Lord Jesus we ask it. Amen.
our time together. Father, lead us, sustain us this week, we pray. Let our words and our actions, Lord, how we live, bring you glory. Help us be faithful in the strength that you provide, Holy Spirit. We love you. Thank you for this time of us being together, both here in person. So good to see so many faces. But in our time of worship on, in, um, online as well, Father, thank you for this time. It's a gift. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, go in peace. We'll see you next weekend.